This is a Trinity Sunday, and this sermon will focus on the Trinity. Tomorrow, though, is Memorial Day, or as it used to be called when I was a child, Decoration Day. The day is a day of remembrance for those who died on our nation's battlefields and in service to this country. Where or when Memorial Day began is much disputed. According to a publication by Duke University, Memorial Day probably began with groups of women in the South, even before the Civil War was over, going to the gravesides and decorating the graves. In 1966, President Lyndon Johnson declared Waterloo, New York, as the founding place of Memorial Day. Uh, that is an arbitrary uh, placement, if you will. Uh, there are at least a dozen towns who also claim to be the first. Regardless, our way of life has been purchased by the blood and treasure of loved ones. A proper respect for the dead, says T.S. Eliot, is a hallmark of civilization. Take time then, I hope, to visit a uh, uh, graves myself, you take time too to visit and remember those who've gone on before. Now enough about Memorial Day. Let me get back to my subject at hand, Trinity Sunday or the Trinity. I'm reminded of a story of a little girl who was not a very good student and she was fidgety and um, restless in class, but when it came to that unit on art, she was, she was always uh, enthusiastic. And um, the teacher noticed that she was unusually absorbed into her project, and she went back and um, said, uh, what are you drawing? And the little girl said, God. And the teacher said, but no one knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, they will when I finish. <laughs> now, my purpose here today is to set before you not what God looks like. No man has seen God at any time. And we sometimes try to visualize what the Godhead might be, but the Trinity really is an uncreated concept. Uh, there is nothing like it in creation to compare it to nor in any other world religion, even though in Hinduism there's said to be a trinity, but if you study it, it's nothing like what Christians teach. And the reason that we believe in the trinity, that God is one being in three hypostases or persons, it is because of God's progressive revelation in the scripture. He reveals himself as God, the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And so it really takes a New Testament perspective to come to a true understanding, I believe, of the triune God. Now, I'm not going to be talking in this sermon about what God looks like, but what God is like. And that is more important, isn't it? What is God like? What is God toward you? How does he look at you? We're individuals. We're a church also. And we may ask that question with respect to the church, but we, we must and do ask it with respect to our individual selves. 
And so when we come to this text today in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, I want you to notice in the text that the Trinity is set forth. In these five verses, you encounter God, and though it doesn't say Father as Father, you encounter the Son as our Lord Jesus Christ, and you encounter the Holy Spirit, and in this case, as the love of God poured out in our hearts. In these five verses, then, we encounter the actions of the Trinity. God in verses 1, 2, and 5, Jesus our Lord, verse 1, and then in verse 5, the Holy Spirit. Now, the Trinity, as you well know, does not refer to three gods, but one God. Always, always, the New Testament is working within the framework of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is no such thing as three gods, but this one God subsists in three persons who are equal in power and glory. And so, therefore, when we come to this text, we see that unfolding, but unfolding on our behalf. We see the Trinity in action, but in action on our behalf. There is only one God, but he acts in three persons to redeem us from our sins. Now, that is the structure of that passage. But if you look in uh, the very first word, we see second thing I want you to notice, and that is the word therefore. Therefore refers to what has gone on before, and particularly in the end of chapter 3 and verse 4 of Romans. And what this word therefore denotes is a kind of summary statement. Therefore, since this is the way it is, then we have this. The believer, it says in chapter 4 and the end of chapter 3, clearly states that the believer is justified through faith and through faith alone in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is his death, and it includes his resurrection. Verses 1 through 5, then, set out what the therefore is. Therefore, if we have been justified through faith, there are certain consequences or certain actions that God has taken on our behalf through justification. And the first observation I want to make is this. Since God justifies the sinner through trust in Jesus and his blood, the believer also, the believer also has received certain benefits that are laid out here in the text. And look what it says. Therefore, since we are justified through faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Now, you would think that everything in a translation like this is simple. There are two or three very naughty places here. Really not so much, but I'll mention them. We can understand the word we have peace with God as an indicative. And it would just simply be the same way that we have translated it here or you have translated for you. We have peace. It's something we have received. But also, there are certain, a certain variants to this text, if you will, that have another word that indicates that it is an imperative. And therefore, we would translate it, let us have peace. 
Now, the former, we have peace, has much more weight to it. So therefore, I think the translators, the NIV and the RSV, have translated it properly. We have peace. That's not to say that it is true, let us have peace as a consequence. We are to be peacemakers. We are to strive for peace. So much lies within us, says the scriptures. And we fall far short of that a lot of times. We don't exhaust our peacemaking ability. But that's really a consequence that since you are justified through faith, we do already have peace in the indicative. It's something that characterizes your relationship in Jesus Christ since you are justified. God no longer, if you will, is displeased with you because you are in Jesus Christ. He's utterly and entirely pleased with you. You're no longer under his wrath, but you've passed from wrath, if you will, into the favor and life of God. Now, that is true of every believer. It's not just true of some believers. You already have peace in Jesus Christ. You have peace because God has subdued your heart, if you will, and brought you to himself. And so, therefore, we have peace with God and we, are find, we find ourselves in his uh, pleasure. It's also true in this passage that if Christ, in Christ you have access by faith into God's grace. Continue to look at the text. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace. Now that's interesting. And the way that is put is that grace is kind of like a room that you enter into. You're outside the door or realm of grace and you enter into it like entering into a room. When you came to faith in Christ, not only do you have peace, but now you have access to all the riches which are in Christ Jesus. You are in him in the realm of grace. And so therefore, While the world has access to God's common grace, he makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. You have access to his special grace in Christ Jesus, that one who was full of grace and truth. Not only are you justified and have peace, but now you have access, if you will, to all the grace and favor of God in Jesus Christ. You are inside the room, You are not outside the room. Let me go on. The privilege of being in a place to receive God's special grace, that is, in Christ. The believer can, if you will, boast in your hope. Now, your translation doesn't say boast, does it? It says rejoice. But if you look in the RSV, it says boast. And if you look in, I believe, the King James, it says boast. The Greek word is actually the word for boast. Now, I think your translators, while they have it right, decided that boasting is a vice in the modern world. And it is. Do you like to be around a boaster or a person who's a braggart? So it has a bad connotation in our context. So therefore, they try to get the essence of it by translating it as rejoice or joy. To rejoice. Well, you can rejoice or boast. And what do you boast in? Well, notice the text again. 
It is through him we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we boast or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are then joyfully confident that we possess the favor of God. And remember, the psalmist says in many places in the New Testament that your joy or rejoicing is your strength. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Notice all of these riches that unfold in the person of Jesus Christ. And what it means is that the triune God is for you and demonstrated that in the person of Jesus Christ. You meet God in the person of Jesus Christ who shared our history, who shared human culture. He shared everything that we are and yet without sin. But let us go on. We also not only rejoice in the glory of God, but he goes on to say that we can rejoice or boast in something else, which is kind of a shock. And look at it in the text. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in sufferings? You know, I think every person I know, including myself, is always trying to avoid suffering, aren't we? Do you rejoice in your sufferings? I think we have a different worldview about suffering. We spend a lot of our time trying to insulate ourselves from things that will hurt or harm us or make us feel lousy or whatever else. Uh, I used to have uh, a person here in the church who, who ran a Christian ministry. And one time I asked him to go visiting with me in the hospital. He says, I don't do hospitals. And I thought, well, that's strange. He's, he's actually... While he's not ordained, he's in the ministry. And I said, is there a reason? He says, yes, I can't take the smells. They remind me of, and cause me to have terrible thoughts. Hmm, he certainly wouldn't go in a nursing home then, would he? Well, we try to insulate ourselves from anything that we perceive to be suffering. We want always, always, in every way, in every case, to be free from suffering. And one day, of course, we will be, but not in this world. And the simple truth is, as Paul knew, that if you identify with Christ, you may indeed suffer. You may indeed share in his suffering. One of the, one, I, I have a, an article posted on the bulletin board. I think Joanne may have posted it. I left it there to be posted. On how Christians are being driven out of the Middle East. There are not going to be any Christians in the Middle East, hardly at all. The birthplace of Christianity. Every nation in the Middle East, except Israel, is driving out Christians. They're suffering. They've lost their goods. They've lost their, their father or motherland. They've lost their culture. They've lost not just economic hardship, but their inheritance they leave there. Think of that for a moment. All across the Middle East, and we can name other countries, in North Korea, in the, the north of Af Africa, particularly in the Maghreb, we find over and over, country after country, that is persecuting Christians. These countries are persecuting Christians. And it's part of Christianity there. 
Have we lost a robust view of what the Christian life is? That's what I want to know. I think Paul expected suffering wherever he went. He was going to pay a price for standing up for Christ and proclaiming the gospel. Now, that may be in our future. I don't know. I don't like the signs. And no one seeks. I'm not a masochist, and you're not. We don't seek to be punished or hurt or injured. But on the other hand, when it does come, we ought to have a robust enough worldview that we can embrace not only, if you will, the peace, not simply, not simply the rejoicing and the joy and, and, if you will, the hope, but it includes the suffering. That is a robust faith, and that is if you will, what we are called to do and to be. He says here, through whom we have gained access by faith into grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Grace and hope, wonderful, wonderful things. Not only so, but we also rejoice or boast in our sufferings. And he says here in a practical way, because sufferings actually produce some things. First of all, suffering produces perseverance. The word is also patience. It's also patience. And patience actually is a way to develop our character into maturity. It's hard to be patient, isn't it? How about a father with a small child? Is that, does that require patience? It seems mothers do better. And what does character produce? Hope. It redounds to your benefit. Sometimes the fruit of the the Spirit is developed in your life because of the sufferings and the heartaches that you go through in life. I've noticed something, and I don't know whether this is true or not. I wonder how Oliver's going to turn out. I do know that I've noticed something in small children. When they, they suffer as small children, they tend to grow up, and I could be wrong. This is an impression that I've gained. They grow up and tend to be more generous giving. It's just just an observation. It could be entirely wrong. But I wonder if that's not the case. I wonder if we we sell short the hardships that we have and what, what those hardships do to make us in the kind of person that God wants us to be. I don't know. But I know Paul's worldview as a Christian included rejoicing in suffering. And he goes on to say, and this produces a hope that will never disappoint. You know, I I, I try to grasp, do you try to grasp what the word hope, there are two words in this text that I try to grasp all the time, hope and glory. I should ask you to write an writing exercise, write down what you think glory means and what you think hope means. Well, I have come to some kind of accommodation with hope. And I've discovered in in, uh, my understanding of this that I no longer believe that hope is some kind of expectation. Hope, rather, is a kind of anticipation. Now, what do I mean by saying that? If I, if, if, I know, if I believe that in two weeks the stock market is going to fall drastically, I can approach that with 
I expect it's going to fall. I may or may not do anything. But if I anticipate that the stock market is going to to fall, it always includes an action, a preparation. If I anticipate something, I act in accordance with it. And so a hope is a kind of anticipation whereby you act according to the hope that you have. You put your money where your mouth is. You take preparation because of this hope. And in view of the fact that we all come to the end of our earthly lives, that is an absolutely necessary thing to do for Christians. Hope really is an anticipation. And taking action and making decisions concerning the end of that anticipation. Hope. It's a wonderful thing. We absolutely need it in life, and we need it in life to become the kind of persons that God has called us to be. Now, I have four points in this sermon. Four points. On what basis, then, do we have any hope? What reason do you have to hope? Why do you hope? You ever, you ever think of that? Do you ever ask yourself the question, too, why do you believe why your neighbor doesn't? Why do you hope and your neighbor doesn't? Well, when we come to the very end of the verse, now remember, we have looked at what God has done in three verses, what the Son has done in one verse. We come to verse 5 and we see the Holy Spirit. And we have this uh, phrase here. And God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. Whom he has given. Well, the reason that we have hope and we can plan for the future is because the love of God is in our hearts. It's been poured out there when we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very Trinitarian passage. Notice all the actions of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that we have received. Now, sometimes a passage like this appears very simple, but let me make it more complex. When you come to a passage like this and you're taught in first year Greek class to look for what are called genitives, that is the of in the in the the love of God is a genitive. You can take it two ways, as a subjective or an objective genitive. I don't like to do this in public, but in this case, it is necessary. If we take it subjectively, it means simply this. Paul is talking about God's love for us. That's a subjective way of taking it. God has poured his love into our hearts and we know that he loves us. Or we can take it in the objective sense and then it becomes this. God has poured out in our hearts our love for him. Our love for him. Now, there, there, there are reasons to choose one over the other. But here again, I don't think we need to do that. I think sometimes in Greek, particularly this wonderful language, is so nuanced 
that you almost always know what to do, but in this case like this, it's ambiguous. You know what I think that means in this case? Take both of them. Love has been poured out in your heart. And you know that God loves you. That's why you hope. Love has been poured out in your heart, which enables you to love God. That's your hope. Now, why would I want to keep both of them together? Because the Shema, do you know what the Shema is? It is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And let me read the Shema to you. The word Shema means to hear. Hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God who acts in three persons and who is and subsists in three persons. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I believe that Paul not only is telling us that God loves us, but he's telling us also that God enables us to love him. And this foundation is a foundation that gives us every reason in this life to hope. We don't have to choose one or the other. Both are the gifts of grace. Let me quote some verses in closing from 1 John, a wonderful verse, uh, a book or a letter about love. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 4, John writes this, We love because he first loved us. Let me go back to chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because... We love our brothers. And then he goes on to say, anyone who does not love his brother or sister remains in death. Let me conclude with this in chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God, not even that little girl. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The reason that you are here today, the reason that you have faith, the reason that you have peace, the reason that you have hope, the reason that you see your sufferings in the light that you do has to do with the simple fact that God has poured out his love in your heart. Poured out his love for you. Poured out that grace that enables you to love him. We don't have to choose sides or tilt over words. We take them both. The Holy Spirit has been poured into your hearts and the love of God has been poured into your hearts through the Spirit. The triune God has secured you and saved you in the person of Jesus Christ. Now I'll come to the end. About some years ago, I was about 16. I'm, I'm sure I was 16. The school year was over. Memorial Day was the end. And I decided to hitchhike with a friend, Jerry Reveal, to my granddad's farm 90 miles away. 
We got halfway into a little town called Anstead, and we were standing there hitchhiking. I don't recommend it, but I lived in a safer day. Here we are. I'm 16. I hadn't got my growth spurt yet, so I was about five foot five. Jerry was six five. Have her thumbs out, Mutt and Jeff. And this guy, two guys in this truck stopped and he said, jump in the back. We jumped in the back and there was a little boy about eight years old back there too. And so we started down the road and I saw some flowers there in the truck bed. And I said to the little boy, are you going to the cemetery? He said, no, we're going to the graveyard. I said, it's because it's Memorial Day, isn't it? He said, no, it's because it's Decoration Day. (laughs) True story. Now, he didn't have to get all the names right. You don't have to understand the Trinity and get all the names right. But you know God as Father. And you know Him as Son. And you know him as the Holy Ghost. And you have great hope in the divine being. And that and what has been preached to you today is the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity. You don't know what God looks like, but you know that he has set his love upon you and given you hope. And because of that hope, my friend, you can have a blessed Memorial Day. You can go and pay that proper respect to the dead. And I'm going to. Visit this cemetery down here. I'm going to lay some flowers at the gravesite of Margaret Wallace, who gave us this land. A soldier of Christ. And I'm going to remember those of my uncles that didn't come home from World War II and loved ones and those that did. that have now gone on to be with the Lord. And the only reason that I could really do that and kind of, if you will, rejoice in it is because I am that one who's the recipient of the divine love as revealed in the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Praise be to God. Praise be to God that he is triune. Amen.